0: Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer
1: for a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan
0: system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options.
2: We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow
0: food. This alternative path is already under construction.
1: Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all.
0: Let
2: those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed,
1: and we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month on Partisan Gardens, we interviewed Hannah Kass, a food systems researcher and graduate student at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Kass recently published an article in the Journal of Peasant Studies that aimed to extend radical critiques of contemporary food systems and efforts to reform them. The article, titled Food Anarchy and the State Monopoly on Hunger, has generated excitement and debate across academic and grassroots food advocates and researchers. As a contribution to this discussion, we asked Hannah to share some of the background of this article and dig in on some of its most charged contributions.
0: Hi, my name is Hannah Cass. I am a joint PhD student in the Department of Geography and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I first started thinking about food Uh, And I guess food sovereignty and food anarchy when I was in a reform school as a teenager. um, And I spent most of my adolescence like institutionalized and on all sorts of like weird drug cocktails and medications um, was in sort of this like carceral psychiatric system um and kind of got interested in food and gardening and like finding freedom from this like medicated prison that I was in um through food and taking care of myself and my community through like nurturing people and the land um nutritionally and and myself of course so um I was I I started this crazy food movement in my uh, reform school, trying to get a garden there um, and trying to get the school food change and learned a lot from my best friend's mother, actually, who um, was a documentarian. And she kind of like taught me all sorts of things about sustainability and sustainable agriculture, um, and healthier eating and things like this. Um, so that's kind of like how I first got into food and agriculture and seeing it as like so much more than just like, you know, what you, what is grown or what is eaten, but also as like a source of freedom and liberation. So that's what first got me into food. Um, and I guess along the way, like finally getting to go to the library and like the more freedoms I sort of was able to obtain as I got older, like the more I started exploring the library and books and, Um, learning about political theory, and came to anarchism mostly through feminism. And really, like, the first feminist book I read was the, The Feminine Mystique, which is all about, like, housewives and, like, how trapped they are and how much they hate their lives, being in these, like, you know, cages of domesticity. And I was like, wow, that feels a lot like my life. So really, like, I always saw feminism and anarchy as, like, inextricable because of that experience. And then, like, many little micro-revolutions along the way since then, you know, working jobs, reading under the desk as a receptionist during the winters, and then farming during the growing seasons for several years in my early 20s, and kind of experiencing the food system from the labor side of things, especially in organic vegetable agriculture and like feeling like it was just impossible. I would never ever get access to land. I would never be able to like really like make money at this thing or have a life where I would be like living from the land because It just felt impossible financially Um, and power wise too. It was just like, you know, it it felt like I would be trapped in farm work forever if I stayed. Um, So that's, I guess, the gist of how I came to these issues. There's probably more, but I won't ramble on.
2: If it's okay to go back to the first of these micro revolutions, and if I could mention just you know, later in the article, you are talking about autonomous food production and autonomous food production seems to pose a relationship between the direct growing of food and collective organizing, thinking politically about, you know, how we are moving in the world with other people and struggles against power. So I just wanted to maybe ask if you'd be willing to go a little bit into detail about what it meant to organize for garden space uh, in this facility. Uh, that seems to be like a kind of instance of, you know, struggling for autonomy through food production.
0: Well, I just remember like I was 16 and um, my best friend's mother, like helped me write up this presentation to present to the president of the school, you know, and I, I actually had a job as a janitor, like a dining hall janitor, at the school Um, they would like employ us to like do things around the facility like for five dollars an hour or whatever uh and so i was cleaning up the dining halls and i would like go into the kitchen and like look at the ingredients and look at the labels and try and figure out like which corporations were we getting this food from and like what kinds of chemicals and what do they do to your body? Like what, you know, what what impact was our food really having on us and, or, and what, who was in power really like, so I did a lot of that. And I like kind of filled up this presentation with this information of like, this is where our food is coming from. And this is what's in it. This is what it does to our bodies. And this is what I propose. Like maybe we should get our food from local farms. Maybe we should have a garden so we can kind of like learn how to grow our own food for the dining hall. And hopefully like find healing from that, especially like given the over medication sort of like endemic to these facilities and to our facility. I remember mentioning that and being like look, you know, nutrition can can do a lot for us that these medications aren't doing for our clarity of mind and our ability to like learn self-compassion and really like have autonomy over that. And yeah, so I presented it to the CEO guy and uh you know he was impressed or whatever but sort of like laughed it off and kind of had to just like keep showing up at his office until like a garden club was started and like one of the staff would like like set up a little garden outside of his office and we would plant like lettuce and carrots and things like that um and they would end up in the dining hall and I, I also ended up being like student council president at this <laughs> because they had a student council. And so I was like, okay, like, this is the way to make this happen. Um, so I was student council president for two years <laughs> and tried to, you know, get them to change the dining hall food and wasn't successful. After I left, they ended up doing it. And they also ended up like making (laughs) making this garden into like a hobby farm where like they had animals and these like small enclosures and like um it became they they apparently are like trying now to like start a farm like a legit farm and make money off of like employing the child prisoners (laughs) who go to school there to work on the farm and make money for the facility. So uh, that didn't really go as I had envisioned, I guess, but that's where it is now.
2: Thinking about nutrition, thinking about organic agriculture as ways to critique the psychiatric system, I think that's just a really interesting critique and way to move. And on the other hand, you know, I mean, you get to this in the article, you know, the dangers of food sovereignty being re-embedded in oppressive structures. And, you know, just as far as that goes, and in thinking about the critique you make in this article, I was wondering if you could sort of lay out the sort of general project that you were trying to consider in this piece, you know, both on the level of the state monopoly of hunger and thinking about the, sort of the structures that we confront when it comes to food and uh, state violence. And then on the other hand, you know, a little bit more about what you mean by food anarchy.
0: I kind of started studying food sovereignty as a farm worker and from this place of powerlessness and feeling like, I mean, not only was I not able to access land and like kind of just grow food without capital, I I was only able to grow really like ecologically sustainable food for like wealthy populations and even then it was like there were so many imperatives of capitalism that got in the way of you know even more agroecologically sound i guess practices so i always felt like i was up against these things and the more i read about food sovereignty as a counter movement to the corporate food regime and sort of like Gaining autonomy over our food, over our land and our sea, Um, and that being like the foundation of it all, like that really resonated with me. And I kept coming up against this frustration in the food regime and food sovereignty literature, um, the more I studied it, where like there was an acknowledgement that there's sort of like two sides of this corporate food regime that we live in now, or or really like all of the food regimes starting from this sort of like 1800s moment of enclosure in Europe and industrialization, um, where it's understood that it's two sides of the same coin for the market to liberalize or to become reformed in moments where social movements push back on this sh- and they say, like, enough, we're done having all of our all of our food and land privatized, or, you know, we want food sovereignty. So it's acknowledged that, like, reform is the same, you know, it's sort of just like another manifestation of the same liberalization, and it's just kind of like a pendulum swing that's used to stabilize the larger capitalist agricultural system over the course of all kinds of historical circumstances but the food sovereignty movement still tends to and the literature you know among scholars still tends to like ally resistance with this reform and there is sort of like a more like progressive movement alongside the more radical movement of food sovereignty and food sovereignty is like always has always been intended to be a radical movement but i kept seeing it over and over where it was like well we can just pressure the state into giving us food sovereignty the state can you know provide this for us and we just have to keep putting more pressure on the state and you know that's what political will to enact food sovereignty looks like is like trying to get state reforms you know land reforms participatory policy making processes um food stamps like any any sort of state led solution to hunger or to food sovereignty that you can think of has been like co-opted in part i think because of this like sort of broad umbrella of food sovereignty, like it could mean so many things, then that's been extensively discussed in the literature as well Is like, it's, you know, food sovereignty has like many different definitions um, that sort of sprouts from this like international peasant movement, Livia Campesina's definition of like defining your own agricultural system and being able to you know, grow food in ecologically sound ways and have justice, have uh, feminism, um, and be able to like practice your own agri- agroecological traditions. And that's sort of like a broad, a very broad way of defining it, which can make it vulnerable to co-optation. So that kind of motivated me to like bring back this radicalism and and to do so by grounding it in anarchy because I really saw like a, a fundamental structural problem with the state being able and capable of providing any sort of genuine food sovereignty because I was learning about the interdependency of, capitalism in the state and property as well and thinking about like okay well if the state requires capital and capital requires property then it would follow that you know the state requires peasant dispossession and therefore requires food sovereignty to be completely, like, beheaded and, in, you know, not, not accessible to us. So we really have to look at these structural issues of the state capital property, Trinity, as I call it in the paper, and this, like, really, really, like, entwined interdependency that really keeps us from having food sovereignty just, you know, ever from the state because it is a movement that is trying to seriously challenge capitalism, you know, both agricultural and otherwise, and and absolutely has to challenge property. I mean, that's really like the origin of the food regimes was like property enclosure and the enclosure movement. And I think there's like a very Marxist, Tendency in the food sovereignty movement and among food sovereignty scholars where um, you know the focus is very much on just capital as if it's disembodied from any other structures, but you know in order for the enclosure movement to happen, you had to have enclosure itself right, you had to have carcerality you had to have like. All sorts of social relationships transformed in favor of that agrarian transition so that was something i really wanted to look into as well and explore in this paper was the social war of the state capital property trinity and how the monopoly on hunger is sort of an outgrowth of the state monopoly on violence so we have violence over our heads to sort of like participate in the capitalist food system and also we're kind of assuaged we're kind of made to believe that the state has the solutions that as long as we get land reform you know it won't in any way resemble enclosure when that's exactly what it does even if it looks nice even if it seems you know, like a helpful solution to food sovereignty and hunger. And it may be like, you know, to some extent, but there's always going to be this like fundamental problem where the state relies on capital and property enclosure. And any solution that it offers is just, it's not able to overcome that fundamental state capital property trinity.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I thought that the formulation of the state monopoly of hunger uh, was one of the most kind of cutting contributions of this intervention. And so I wanted to maybe ask, I mean, the thing that's striking, right, about hunger and famines is that they appear naturalized in our society, right? Uh, People suffer from hunger, you know, famines occur, but it's often really obscured who is responsible and under what conditions do people starve? And I thought that this formulation of the state monopoly of hunger really brought out, you know, who is responsible. And it seems like you're really putting a focus on dispossession and enclosure. So I was wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, both this concept of the state monopoly of hunger, and then maybe if you could just kind of walk us through a little bit more about what you mean by dispossession and enclosure, if you're willing to share Any examples that might be really helpful for listeners who aren't familiar with sort of how this works?
0: So dispossession and hunger, I mean, I think it's really like misunderstood. And it's assumed because of the social war of the state monopoly on hunger that like, it's actually agricultural capitalism that will save people from hunger. Um, when in reality, it's exactly that which engineers hunger. So you can see this through the food regime theories and through this political history of capitalist agriculture starting in the 1800s, starting with the agrarian transition. So you have like peasants being dispossessed from the land and that causing hunger and famine because their ways of life, you know, being able to, like, freely grow their own food and provide for themselves and provide for one another, the commons has just been taken from them in order to produce, like, sheep wool or whatever for the factories that were emerging during the time, because industrialization, kind of industrial capitalism ends up, you know, being being the the beginning of i guess it I, I don't know maybe not the beginning but a huge factor in creating like a more worldwide dispossession because then colonialism kind of speeds up specifically like agricultural colonialism you need all these raw materials for the factories you need cotton and tobacco and guano and Um, sugar and tea and things like this. Um, And mercantilism provided, you know, a really unfortunately helpful framework for making this happen, because it's like economic nationalism, you can just take these lands and like, basically like, suck up all of the resources and wealth and like, people's livelihoods and everything else to like accumulate for the mother countries. Um and so that was, you know, what built what built the global north, what built the US and Europe. And then it kind of continues in the second food regime during like the post war period when kind of needed to do more industrialization in the north of agriculture Um, at a certain point. Like capital always needs to like move around and find new frontiers, right? So uh, that's when, you know, America kind of becomes this like huge breadbasket, this huge like producer of grain and like corn and kind of like, things that would substitute for, like, sugar and things like this that were originally being, like, mostly extracted from the colonies. So creating high, high fructose corn syrup, for example. So in order to sell all of that surplus, though, like, dispossession was required. So, you know, food aid, that's sort of like, sold to people in the north and northern markets as like oh you're we're helping people saving people from hunger through food aid but what it does is you know it creates new markets for agribusiness in the north you know they all of these agribusinesses sort of get all this money from selling countries food aid by dumping it there and then Displacing people's local economies, local agroecologies. So then import dependency is kind of engineered in that sense. And you also had like biotechnologies in the Green Revolution. And this idea that like the hunger that had been sort of engineered through the globalization of northern industrialized agriculture, especially in the U.S., like, and through the colonial regime that became like, oh, like, we need new consumers, essentially, Um, and creating consumers out of people in the global south, farmers in the global south. So selling biotechnologies, all of the things that had, like, created all of this overproduction in the north that idea of overproduction as progress and as national liberation especially in the wake of the decolonization movement it was kind of like oh like this is what will save you from (laughs) what will save you from your own plight that has already been created by like colonial capitalism by becoming capitalists yourselves and by generating this you know capital to build a state a nation state in this world system where you've already been like totally over and then all of this is just cemented into international treaties through the free trade movement during the neoliberal era Um, and you see like a roll out of militarization and you know, borders and policing and prisons and like all of these, you know, more militarized technologies of the state to make labor precarious. And that kind of like in concert with free trade agreements, which and structural adjustment policies which force peasants to produce outward and produce for the low the global market and, abandoned their own local food systems like all of these forces of, you know, colonialism and capitalism coming from the north, just like it was all done through dispossession. Dispossession is sort of like, I think, the locust of of hunger.
2: And so just against dispossession and the state monopoly of hunger, you pose food anarchy. And I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about the sort of anarchist traditions you're drawing on, maybe for people who aren't familiar with the anarchist tradition, if you could lay out some of the real fundamentals and then maybe get into why you draw on anarchism to think about food.
0: Yeah, so in this paper, I really, I see food anarchy as something that can draw on any tradition of anarchism. I first kind of thought about it because I see a lot of parallels between the food sovereignty movement and anarchism. So in food sovereignty, you know, this idea of peasants defining their own food systems like that to me sounded a lot like anarchism and sounded a lot like, you know, people actually taking taking food systems into their own hands so that could either be like a more like bookchinite sort of way of thinking of things through like direct democracy and communalism although many anarchists would say like that's not anarchism but uh, that's sort of like the first thing it reminded me of um especially like a lot a lot of the way the food sovereignty movement seems to go but i feel like there's also a lot of like insurrectionary currents in food sovereignty movements. And also it's very sort of unrecognized or underplayed how, you know, these counter movements for food sovereignty that respond to things like food price crises, they are, you know, they manifest in the form of uprisings and riots and rebellions against government. Um, That's something that I wish I had gone into more detail about in the paper, because I think it's important that like these aren't just, you know, sort of like the stereotype of a riot where it's like specifically because people are hungry and, you know, they have pitchforks. And so like that's why they riot. It's, you know, specifically like in Haiti. They chased the prime minister out of the island during the food price crisis, I think, of 2008. And it was specifically an anti-government, anti-food system rebellion. So, yeah, I think that there's a huge insurrectionary current um going on in any food sovereignty struggle that has happened i mean if you look at the world trade organization protests in 1999 battle for seattle that was like rioting against the world trade organization um these are like institution specific institutions that people are making efforts to destroy (laughs) so that's something i want to emphasize um But it is constituent as well. I mean, um, you have like peasants in Argentina who are creating like community councils. You have um, people in Mexico who are also, you know, leading insurrections against their government to like stop the pollution of wind energy, for example, of their their foodways and their waters and uh the fish that they rely upon um and creating like new kind of government forms out of that so an anarchism I think does both you know you have kind of the more like social anarchist variety of anarchism where you have like like I mentioned Bookchin but also Kropotkin um who was sort of like a father I don't like to say the father of like anarcho-communism um I I mean definitely influential in anarcho-communism but anarcho-communism can also be much more insurrectionary than I think Kropotkin ever was but um you know through mutual aid and through just like meeting each other's needs and building community we can feed each other um, without enclosing property without dispossessing anyone from the land we can just share these resources voluntarily and we have the ability to do that um and so yeah I i think it can be a combination of and often is Uh, A combination of anarcho-communism or social anarchism and then this more like insurrectionary variety.
2: And in terms of thinking about the insurrectional element of food anarchy, you use this term viral subversion. I was wondering if you could unpack what that means, and in particular, maybe the relationship between food anarchy and everyday life?
0: Yeah, so viral subversion comes from my friend Alexander Dunlap, who is an anthropologist. Um, And he wrote a paper called, uh, God, what is the full title? Um, It's about a political ecology of resistance and kind of creating an insurrectionary political ecology. and he he talks about viral subversion as kind of a new strategy for challenging like the relationship between political systems and ecological destruction, and basically rebelling and using direct action and illegalism and um, tactics of of destruction and subverting the order directly um, in order to stop it. So, you know, this this could be, there are a number of tactics that can be used to do this and are being used today. Um, I mean, when you think about like land struggles, for example, um, like in the Atlanta forest and in many other places, like stopping bulldozers from clearing the forest by like making them completely not functional, or like the peasants during the agrarian transition who like took their wooden shoes to like screw with the machinery, um, the industrial agriculture machinery that was, you know, like, contributing to their dispossession from the land and from the commons and their common way of life. Um, So essentially, spreading this transgression everywhere, and making it just a way of life for people, um, or just like spreading this idea of resistance, uh, and inspiring it. So yeah, that's essentially what viral subversion is, is Exactly what it sounds like, subverting the order that you're trying to resist um and spreading that that subversion everywhere possible.
2: Well, just maybe specifically, if it's viral, you know it's spreading person to person or in everyday life.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and that also brings me just to the question of what is the relationship between actual food production, food growing? and food anarchy?
0: That's a difficult question because, you know, something like agriculture is, it's a permanent thing, or it's like something that requires like a really sustained tenure on land, right? Which is like hard to make possible and make sustainable when you have political repression up against you. But, I think land occupation and like fierce resistance through like growing things anyway, anywhere that has huge potential. And I don't think it's impossible. I think, you know, it's, it's happening, it's happening like all over the world. And it's also, I think about just like Korea gardening and like, making deals with friends and mutual aid and like finding any possible place to set down your roots, if you will, and grow something, grow anything.
2: And along those lines, what's the relationship between this sort of academic research and autonomous food production and food anarchist struggles? What is the sort of intervention you're making? writing, you know, and thinking in this way? And how does it relate to other kinds of struggle?
0: I'm hopeful that making this intervention will make academics, especially, you know, who have been sort of state pilled, um, but also struggles that have been state pilled, um, or co opted by the state or co opted by nonprofits, which I see as a huge problem, particularly in like food recovery and food distribution projects. Um, It's like really unfortunate how much a nonprofit stat, you know, 501c3 status can give you legitimacy in the eyes of like people who have access to, to food waste. But I guess my hope is to get people thinking deeper about like the structural issues we're up against. And rather than just kind of thinking like on a surface level of like, okay, it's agricultural capitalism, it's, you know, it's overproduction, it's like all of these things, it's high prices. um, It's really, really like entrenched in all of the systems of power, like capitalism included, but also the state and property. Um, And it's extremely entrenched in the way that we think about, like, food at all, or getting food, getting access to food. Um, And what we know, like how we know how to access food and land, like, we are like, always stopped you know by just like the everyday reality of the retail transaction for example of like you know not knowing how to access food without buying it or only knowing how to grow vegetables or not having a place to grow your own vegetables or not you know like there's any number of any number of things that stop us from like really having true food sovereignty, um, or, you know, obviously like the heavy criminal penalties, um, and the violence we face, if we do cross that fence, if we do squat on that land, and if we do try to like grow something different, um, like That's a huge deterrent, and uh, I mean, the deterrents are everywhere. So thinking more in terms of like, all of the power that we're up against and kind of like, I guess the food cops in our heads and the land cops in our heads, and just the way that the whole world is laid out in accordance with what those cops are creating and telling us um, and forcing us into and out of, like, I I felt like that was a really important intervention here so that we could start addressing the fundamental structural problems of why we don't have food sovereignty. Um, And that it's not just, you know, getting the right politician in office or the right policies in place, it goes so much deeper than that. And truly countering the corporate food regime, you know, it is a regime for a reason. It It's a regime, you know, it, it's not just because, like, capitalism is so tantalizing and, you know, whatever, like, Twinkies rock. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't really like Twinkies, but I don't know, people like them. Um, <laughs> But it's not it's not a matter of it's not a matter of capitalism alone. It's like everything is just completely transformed in favor of this corporate food regime, this and this long arc, this long history of capitalist food regimes, um, and the rules being um, sort of formed in favor of agricultural capitalism. Um, and food capitalism. So uh, I really wanted to just dig deeper into that's that structural stuff.
2: And in terms of that long history of state violence and dispossession, you mentioned the colonial dimension earlier. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if I could just switch gears to sort of talk about this particular moment in North America, you know, in which the uprising after George Floyd's murder threw into relief longer histories, not just the dispossession of native people, uh, which is central to the history of this country, but also the dispossession uh, and systematic exclusion uh, from state resources of black farmers. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, what does your sense of food anarchy pose in terms of struggles against the racial order and in terms of ongoing uh, uprisings against uh, the police and the white supremacist society we live in?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I think what the uprising showed us was really what destroying these social relations of like a social war of capitalism or or of a state monopoly on hunger or, you know, what have you, like what direct action really does for transforming those social relations? Because what you got from, you know, burning things down was, you know, the liberation of commodities, you, the liberation of, things from shelves to be shared with people. Um, the destruction of property as like an important institution, not only like the physical material destruction of property, but its social destruction um, that, I mean, that was hugely important for creating these like autonomous zones that popped up in the wake of that, right? you you started seeing new social relations popping up of a more insurrectionary communism um, and of anarchy where like mutual aid was the norm and property and commodities had, you know, no power anymore, at least for a moment. So I, I definitely think that those uprisings really like, showed us what it could be showed us that it's possible to, to resist the current order to disrupt it to completely turn it upside down and create something different from the ashes of that destruction.
2: The limit that's been reached, you know, time and again, in these insurrectionary moments has been, for example, you know, these beautiful moments of well organized looting from Minneapolis to Oakland, where it was very clear that entire communities came together to strip a target of all the things that were needed by people in that community, but which had been denied to them them during the pandemic crisis. And yet there's the question of what to do once the target is empty. And, you know, I was wondering if like there's a way even going back to Kropotkin to think about the relationship between rural struggles uh, you know efforts by people growing food you know what can be done to link those things with urban struggles that are questioning and destroying the property relation and emptying out capitalist supermarkets of food you
0: know they're they work together they're these struggles are like two sides of the same coin the urban and the rural like I think the dismantling that went on during the uprisings like is maybe a precursor or like or a a partnership a crucial partnership with like any rural struggle to like occupy land for example or resist agribusiness because like the the urban you know urban space and urban life is built on like the hollowing out of rural life so like they can't be separated and the sooner that urbanites sort of reject this hollowing out through uprising and through like totally throwing out property and commodities as important relevant ways of you know, obtaining sustenance, like, that to me is like an immediate partnership with the rural. And, and I mean, I think also repopulating rural spaces, um, and repopulating them with resistance has huge potential. Um, More people occupying land, more people like um making rural spaces the site of resistance too is hugely important I wish I had the answer to you know how to sustain that energy like after insurrectionary moments yeah but I don't
2: (laughs) I mean these are huge questions and likewise I would say that your piece feels like it's just the beginning of laying out a kind of broader and collective research agenda. So I wanted to ask you, you know, starting from the set of premises you lay out in your article, you know, what do you think are the next steps for both thought and research and action to sort of fill out or respond to this proposal?
0: Well, I definitely see this paper as like a theoretical foundation for further empirical research. I'm a woman without a field site at present, but I'm really getting to know a lot of people through the publication of this paper who are trying to make food anarchy happen across the U.S. I'd like to look more into the relationship between the state monopoly on hunger and non-profitization of mutual aid food projects, because like I was saying earlier, there's really a lot of co-optation going on by different nonprofits in different cities, um, including here in Madison where I am now, and sort of like a monopolization of power over food waste. So that I find really fascinating. And I definitely think like the nonprofit capitalism connection needs to be like further emphasized because I think a lot of people see it as like a third way, like, oh, like it doesn't have to be the state or capital. It can be nonprofit. You know, it's just kind of another rebranding and, and, you know, a huge part of the social war too, right. Of the state monopoly on hunger. Like we, we have this, you know, pseudo capitalist way of doing capitalist agribusiness. So, there's that. But I'm also getting to know a lot of people who are like defining autonomous zones in their own ways through gardening and through occupying land with food forests and things like this, and occupying land through just like mutual aid infrastructures like food distribution that I find super fascinating and and also like redefining territory and space through through these you know, ways of interpreting what an autonomous zone is. So, like, not seeing autonomous zones or um, autonomy in territory or autonomy in space as necessarily dependent on, like, physical occupation of land, but as a matter of relationships, as a matter of, like, you and your friends becoming this autonomous zone through autonomous social relations, um, which was like really also the backbone of autonomous zones in the George Floyd uprising too. I mean, I, I do think it was sparked by and like very much like born out of the physical destruction of property, and like the spatialization of autonomy through like occupying space, um, and destroying, you know, capitalist uh, ways of organizing space. But I mean, what really like, sustained autonomy was the social relations that went on from that. So um, I'm hopeful about learning more about these autonomous social social relations as it pertains to food and land and all of these wonderful projects and people that and relationships that are being built around the U.S. and elsewhere.
2: And in terms of these kind of budding discussions, I wanted to return to sort of the start of your piece and just talk about the relationship between food anarchy and food sovereignty. And you frame this as an intervention in food sovereignty discussions, but also at the same time that you're not posing a kind of binary choice. Uh, This is another lens. And so I wanted to just ask, kind of moving forward, what kind of discussions and debates you think are productive in the broader space of food sovereignty?
0: I definitely am excited to see where discussions of like Um, authoritarian populism in the rural in rural spaces will go because I think that's been like a huge place where food sovereignty has been co-opted and um, made into like a series of state policies and plans and things like this and that has led to like reliance on oil and agribusiness and extractive industry to sort of like build again a state monopoly on hunger where you're coercing these like food sovereignists or like state food sovereignists into believing that you're resolving the problem through just perpetuating the problem of agricultural capitalism or oil capitalism which is a huge plank of agribusiness so you know i i i am really encouraged to see like this sort of split between the food sovereignists and food autonomous happening in social movements that are seeing this where it's like you get this so-called like food so- pro-food sovereignty government instated and like n- the nationalization of resources and you know, all of these great participatory programs where like, you know, we will be defining our own food system through the state, like that being a disillusion and like something that people are seeing through, I think is really encouraging.
2: I also wanted to invite you to share suggestions on what you think people should read or track to kind of join into this conversation. We've thrown out a lot of different concepts and ideas and frameworks uh, over the past hour. And so if there are core texts or things that were sort of gems that you felt like you were able to dig up in this piece, I would love to sort of share that explicitly with our listeners.
0: I guess if you wanna learn about the political history of agriculture I would definitely recommend the work of Eric holt Jimenez and Raj Patel. They have been like my, they changed my life, basically, (laughs) their work. Read, you know, anarchist literature, whether it's academic or otherwise. The work of Alexander Dunlap has been a huge influence on me. And, And Foucault, I think, is really helpful for understanding a lot of these things. Let's also explore destituent power more. That's something that I'm thinking a lot about is like, how can we exit the food regimes through reversing power and through drawing on a rightful antagonism toward the corporate food regime, um, rather than like being vulnerable to co-optation and being reintegrated into the the machine through reformism. Um, And through like, you know, believing that we can still participate in any regime to change it like that, I think, is hugely important and and something I definitely want to explore more theoretically. Yeah, I I think also Foucault's work um, in Discipline and Punish and the Punitive, Punitive Society lectures talks a lot about peasant illegalism. And like criminality is a way of resisting agricultural enclosure and the agrarian transition. Um, like that's a hugely important history that I'm trying to dig more into now that I think is like really revelatory because, you know, people resisted, people didn't want to be farmers and farm workers or factory workers or whatever, like, people resisted the enclosure of the commons and we should continue our resistance of the enclosure of the commons um, in whatever way possible, even if it's just, you know, food anarchy in the form of like making your grandma some cookies or whatever. (laughs) Like that's the other thing about food anarchy that I think is really important is like, it's flexible. It contains a, huge diversity of tactics for taking back our food system find whatever your niche is in the food anarchic sphere you know because it's so many things it's love it's hate and rage and resistance and care and insurrection and like any form of resistance you can think of
1: We'll have a PDF of Hannah's article on our show notes. This has been Partisan Gardens.
2: On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food.
0: We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt.
1: But also to those in all sectors of the food world.
2: To the servers
0: and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism.
2: We want to talk to you, too. Please write us at partisan gardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.